We've heard from some significant voices on translation issues in Arabic and other Muslim contexts, but so far, we haven't been able to sit down with a native speaker of Arabic and hear their perspective. As D.A. Carson said, it's important to listen to people from the Middle East rather than focus our attention only on Western opinions. So that's what we're going to do in this episode. George Husni is our guest, and he grew up in Lebanon, and he's an author. He has vast experience in missions, Bible translation, linguistics, and engaging Islam. You're listening to the Working for the Word podcast, and I'm Andrew Case. Let's do this. So before we get into the interview, a few more things about our guest, George Husting. He has traveled to 98 countries and has 40 years of experience in evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. He's the founder of Horizons International Mission, and he has made a significant contribution to the world of Bible translation into Arabic. As you can read on Wikipedia, in 1973, Living Bibles International launched a new translation of the Arabic Bible under his direction, which was completed in 1988. He's going to share with us how initially the project was vehemently opposed by the proponents of the Smith and Van Dyke translation. In the end, the translation gained wide acceptance throughout the Arab world. In 1992, it was dubbed the New Arabic Version, the NAV, after Living Bibles International merged with the International Bible Society, which is now known as Biblica. The nearest English equivalent to the New Arabic version is the New International Version, and there are now several million copies in circulation. Now, what's particularly significant about this project is that Christians in the Arab world began to accept the idea of new translations after seeing the importance of a clear and contemporary Arabic style because of this new translation. George also has some interesting things to share about the WEA document from the last episode, as well as his own history with the controversy over divine familial terms. So, let's get into it. I grew up in Lebanon, where I am right now, and was raised up as a Greek Orthodox in a Muslim city of Tripoli in Lebanon. I was uh, early on in my life interested in languages, and I studied linguistics in college. And after college, the Lord gave me an opportunity to uh, work on Bible translation. So I was looking for people groups in the whole Middle East, traveled country by country, uh, finding these people who don't have uh, the Bible in their language. So I began translation projects in several languages and mainly the Arabic language that I ended up doing myself, supervising and working on the translation, uh, as uh, well as the Kurdish language. So that's my little background with Bible translation. Hmm. Tell us a little bit more about Horizons. Horizons is a mission agency aimed at uh, fulfilling the Great Commission, but we focus on Muslim countries. We exist in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia, and uh, Muslim Asia, uh, Muslim Europe, East Europe, uh, North Africa included, so um, included in the Arab world. 
What are some things that make make your mission distinct from other missions, and what led you to found Horizons? Well, actually, I was part of several mission agencies before I founded Horizons, and I have been a bit disappointed with some of the practices of uh, mission agencies. Uh, especially, uh, I recognize the shifting or diversion from biblical faithfulness in Bible translation, for one, but also in mission in general. Less focus on the gospel and more focus on humanitarian work. And the whole movement of contextualization has bothered me for about 50 years since I was exposed to it. Uh, the mission movement became more interested in pleasing the cultures and appeasing them rather than challenging the culture. Mm. Horizons has uh, core values that uh, hopefully, even after my uh, passing away, it will continue to hold on to some core values that guarantee that we would not uh, drift away from the gospel because I'm interested in saving souls, not just serving souls. Uh, and so we, as a result of our core values, we believe in our ministry all over the world. We've been very effective and very fruitful in that thousands of Muslims have come to a saving knowledge of Christ and are participating in the kingdom through their local churches and ministries and so on. Great. Could you walk us through some of the early history of Bible translation into Arabic? Yes, I have actually written uh, quite a bit about this. There are probably 75 Bible translations in the last, say, 1800 years. Mm -hmm. But many of them are not in existence anymore. The first full Arabic New Testament known was, is in the 9th century. Uh, the most prominent in modern days is the one that was generated by a Presbyterian missionary in the middle of the 1800s, uh, Cornelius Van Dyck. Uh, that Bible was translated uh, with the same uh, spirit and style of the King James. And because the evangelicals or the Protestants were more active in evangelism, and spreading the word, it became the most used Bible translation, even among the non-Protestants, uh, like the Catholics and the Orthodox mm. uh, used it. The Catholics had their own, uh, called the Jesuit translation. Uh, the Orthodox only produced a few uh, Gospels, but never uh, completed an entire Bible. And it uh, took a while for the next uh, translation to to emerge in the mid-19th hundreds. And I came into the scene in, uh, in 1973, I began mm. the work. And at that time, I did a lot of research on what's going on, what happened in history, Bible translation, terminology, and stuff like that. Spent several years in research before I got into a real serious translation work. And um, so... There have been some uh, translations that didn't really make it to the shelves, but they did exist, which are more attuned with the Quran, using Quranic terminology. One uh, such project 
did not include the whole New Testament, but just the Diatessaron, which is the harmony of the four Gospels. This was right. rejected vehemently by the churches. United Bible Societies produced a translation called the Common Translation, which was working in parallel with my translation, which we call the Book of Life, Kitab al-Hayat. Hmm. So today you could, uh, if you go to any Arabic Christian uh, bookstore, you'll find the uh, Van Dyck translation is still uh, loved, like the King James is loved in the English world. Mm -hmm. And then next to it, you'll find my translation, Kitab al-Hayat, and you'll find the common translation and somewhat the Jesuit translation. It's not very popular. Mm -hmm. They produced after that a translation called the J Jerusalem Bible, and they, uh, they produced an Arabic version of that. When I began to do Bible translation and uh, had reviewers, they look at a translation of a verse and they say, oh, but that's not in the Bible. I say, what do you mean it's not in the Bible? They're referring to the to the Van Dyke as the Bible. <laughs> yeah. So they 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 weren't really thinking much of it as a translation, mm -hmm. but uh, as a Bible. Yeah. I I spoke one time in Philippines at a conference, and uh, about five thousand people were there from one denomination that believes in the King James only. Mm. So, but I had I had my NIV Bible in my hand, and so the the one who invited me said, "Don't you dare read from it!" <laughs> and he gave me his King James oh, Bible. <laughs> so I, I I preached from the King James Bible, and then at lunch he pointed to a pastor out there at a different table. He said, "Know that guy? He thinks that you can correct the Greek text from the King James based on the King James." <laughs> yeah, of so course. <laughs> that, that's that's really not uh, a truth, but it's uh, it's an attitude, it's a perception, and we've had very serious perception. So much so that uh, when word came out that I'm working on a new translation, I was opposed, mm. opposed by top leaders of the churches and all denominations. Some of them even were threatening me. <laughs> wow. Uh, physically and burning my office and things like that. But over time, uh, people began to uh, to see the value of the translation because I uh, endeavored not to be violent or or wild in my translation, but to be uh, conservative as conservative as possible, and just prove a point that the Van Dyck is not as accurate as you think. Mm -hmm. If you were to go back to the Hebrew and to the Greek, and then it's not as clear uh, as, uh, as it seems. Mm -hmm. uh, so I demonstrated by showing various verses that are very ambivalent, difficult to understand because of the archaic, archaic Arabic. Mm -hmm. So after a while, people started really liking my translation and promoting it, and has gone into the into the tens of millions of copies. I was the supervisor and chief editor, but I had also a team. 
Okay. I worked with, uh, with a team of scholars and a team of linguists. I had about 40 people involved, uh, some more than others. I see. And who was the organization behind it? Was it a specific... Well, it, it started, it started uh, with a, what he called entity that we called Middle East Publications that was created here oh. by, by some missionaries and me and some other Lebanese. But the project was funded by the Living Bibles International, although the translation was not a living translation. My translation is similar to the NIV. Okay. Uh, and the NIV, uh, produced by International Bible Society, became the owner of the project after Living Bibles merged with the International Bible Society, which is now called Biblica. Right. So, people actually burned your office who... No, no, they threatened. Oh, they threatened to burn your office. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> because you were going to produce something that wasn't the Van Dyke version. Basically, exactly. They, they were yeah. Van Dyke onlyists. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> wow. Okay. So well, the, there's a legit, there's a legitimate reason to it too. Without making fun of them, I would say, because they were concerned about the Muslim criticism of the Bible being corrupted. Oh yes. So they they said, well, if we come up with a translation that's differs from the Van Dyke, we give them more reason mm -hmm. to judge us and to criticize us. Right. And I, my response to that was, don't be intimidated by Muslims. If Muslims want to criticize you, they'll criticize you anyway. Mm -hmm. But we, we need a good, clear translation that is up to date linguistically. There's at least 1,500 words in the Van Dyke that are not used today. Wow. Or that, or that they have changed their sense, their meaning. I do not want to succumb to the uh, contextualized, which is called the Muslim idiom translation concept, because I did uh, very serious research. Initially, I was exposed to that, and I was uh, trained to use Quranic terminology. Trained meaning I attended Bible translation training uh, seminars that promoted that idea. At first I listened and I was curious, but then later on I rejected it. And one reason is that I'm a native mm -hmm. and most of the teachers were, not most, all of them were Americans. So I uh, made a list of about a hundred terms and I wrote, I wrote a paper called um, Meaning Discrepancy in common terminology between Islam and Christianity, which is a fancy title to something like, what is the difference in this in uh, meaning of the same terms that Muslims, Christians use? Yeah. I took that list and I began to test it on Muslims and Christians, looking through uh, Christian literature, through Islamic literature in the Arabic language, see how those words are being used in Islamic literature and Christian literature mm. and on the street in North Africa and Middle East and yeah. uh, many Arab countries. And I found that uh, there's huge discrepancy in meaning between this, uh, Islam and uh, Muslims, Christians, even though the word is the same, 
but the sense uh, and the connotations as well as the associations that come with that word are different in the two religions. Mm. So, so I uh, came up with the conclusion that to use Quranic terminology in Arabic Bible is like uh, trying to insert some uh, non-systematic theology of Islam into a systematic Bible. Mm -hmm. And so it's like patchwork. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't look right, and it does not sound right, and it won't uh, communicate the correct meaning. Right. Now, you were hearing this taught at seminars back when? Like, what year was this? Uh, right in the beginning, when I began my translation work in the mid-70s. Okay. I, I traveled to Africa, to uh, the Daystar University, where I took a five-week course. And that's when I was first exposed to it. But afterwards, uh, it became uh, common for Bible translators to start using Muslim idiom translations. Wycliffe was the most prominent mm -hmm. organization that was practicing that. Right. Now, you were one of the, the early voices, as I understand, who wrote a plea to people like Wycliffe to not do this any longer. When did that plea come out? Well, from the beginning, when I began to see this, uh, which I call mistranslations that accommodate Muslims, any opportunity I had in conferences, I was part of the Lausanne mm. movement for many years, attended conferences, gave seminars. I would say I warn against that thing. But it was a small voice here and there, and the movement is growing, growing, growing. Uh, finally, when it got to the Arabic language, when it was not really that close to me, I, it, I took it seriously, but I could not, you know, speak up uh, as confidently as when it got mm -hmm. into the Arabic language. And so about uh, 15 years ago, a uh, translation was made in the Arabic language that uses Islamic terminology. But not only it uses Islamic terminology, but it, re for example, the term son of God is removed completely from the New Testament and the, and the word father is removed. So when I saw that in the Arabic translation, I said, what are you doing, you guys? So I began to voice to the publishers, those who worked on it, and I know the people, I knew the people, Say, come on, take it easy, don't do this. This is, this is not accurate and it's causing... There are actually many problems with that. It causes um, confusion in the church itself, mm -hmm. in the Arabic church. And if a, if a Muslim convert came to Christ or Christianity without uh, the Bible in their hand having the word Son of God, and then they cross over to a church that is more traditional, and they hear, Jesus, Son of God, they think that's blasphemy. <laughs> because what, what are you talking about? <laughs> so it creates a confusion and also a division in the church. And I have many other reasons, many concerns. Some of them theological, some of them practical, some of them linguistic. I contacted Wycliffe personally, 
and then took a team with me to meet with some of the top leaders, confronted them with this problem, and they were very confident what they're doing. They know what they're doing and they will continue. So we, uh, we put a petition on our biblicalmissiology.org site and that's what started it. And uh, it's exactly 10 years ago. Now, when you had that meeting with them and they were very confident that what they were doing was correct, Yes. What were their main arguments? You know, what what would somebody on the other side use as their main arguments to support what they're doing? Well, I asked uh, directly this question personally, and they say, well, we should translate, not mistranslate. And if we if we say "son of God" and the Muslim reads it as a sexual uh, product of a of a God marrying a woman, uh, then we are mistranslating. So we should, we should remove that so that we don't, uh, are not misunderstood. So I said, well, is Jesus the son of God or not? I said, well, what does it mean? <laughs> so they began to skirt around uh, the meaning of son. That, you know, Jesus is not really a physical son of God, so why don't we call him spiritual son of God? And then I mm-hmm. say, well, spiritual, I am a spiritual son of God, <laughs> but uh, what, what, how am I different than Jesus, or how is Jesus different than me? So this is the kind of mm-hmm. debate we've been going through. Yeah. As I understand, another motivation that's strong is people simply want to reach more Muslims. That's what I hear in the argument. That's correct. One argument is that uh, you need to start where people are, give them the familiar so mm-hmm. you need to use a Quranic terminology that they're familiar with, and then you move them. Some of them say, you know, this is a transitional Bible translation. It's just to get them interested, get them into the Word of God, and then you can develop a new translation that, has, that tells the real story. And I say that's deceptive. <laughs> so th- there are many arguments uh, about this. Sure. Now, as I understand it, there is a very big disagreement between people who would say that Muslims always, without exception, understand somebody who's a father or son to have some kind of result of sexual union. And then in, in, uh, there are others who would say, no, they can understand that metaphorically just fine. Yes, that's true. Well... I am an Arabic speaker, I also speak French and English, and I've been exposed to many languages. I will tell you in emphatically that Arabic has more met, uh, metaphorical meanings than in a, even in English. And there's a lot of words and terminology used in Arabic that use the word son, which is completely non-sexual and non-physical. Uh, but some people got stuck on this idea that uh, the word son always carries sexual connotations. And that's totally not true. And uh, the, th- the rule of thumb for me is if you go on the street and meet a family, a man and his wife and some boys and girls or one boy and, you know, their children, and you ask, who is this? boy, and he tells you, that's my son, 
grab that word and use it in the Bible. <laughs> because he is talking about his son. He's not saying, oh, by the way, I had sex with my wife and I produced this boy. He's not talking that way. He's just, that's my son. That's the Arabic language that uses Ibn. In the Hebrew, the mm -hmm. same thing. And in English, it would be the same. In any language, when I've been consulted on languages I did not know, I said, I really can tell you what word to use, but I can tell you, go on the street and talk to people and say, who is this boy? And if mm -hmm. they say, this is my son, and that, grab that word, that's the word for Jesus. Mm -hmm. I, I want to, to go back to what you said about the conferences that people were people who were promoting this were all Westerners. And I, I have not heard yet, but I'm wondering, is there not even one single leader, a native Arabic speaker from the Middle East who promotes Muslim idiom translations? Yes, of course, yeah. What I referred to all Americans were my teachers, the ones I, I learned from. But they have persuaded... Uh, a few uh, Arab speakers, especially from Muslim background, who were made to feel bad that they had deserted their culture, they deserted their language, they decided their families, and they shouldn't mm. have. So some of them have actually returned to Islam. And some of them didn't return to Islam, but they, uh, they returned to calling themselves Muslim followers of Jesus. So there are some, but they are not scholars in, mo in, the, mo in the most part. Most of them okay. are not scholars, but they are okay. leaders who have followed that, that uh, path. Now, when the WEA finally decided on the Son of God issue, there were some people who would say that it wasn't quite thorough enough. What are some of the loopholes that you saw perhaps troubling? Of course, I read the document very carefully. I know most of the people who were on that committee, and that okay. committee could not have produced any better uh, document because it's made out of people on both sides of the camp. There were six people who I believe would uh, adhere to what I adhere to in biblical translation, and there were four who weren't. And you cannot come up with a consensus without some compromise. So the very uh, most of the document was incredibly good. But then you have some little <laughs> innuendos, some little words there. Say, in most situations mm -hmm. and where it's possible, we need to go literal on this term. But when, mm -hmm. but, and that's the but. There's an, they left an exception. But where this terminology may be misunderstood, that represents those four people who believe that, then mm -hmm. we should look for alternatives. And they gave 12 alternatives. And none of them I agree with. And so, so in my opinion, uh, they, somebody described it, says you can, drive an 18-wheeler through that document. And if you, are, if you are a Wycliffe scholar who really believes in all of your heart that uh, Jesus should not be called the Son of God because it's been misunderstood, there you get your exception. Sure. And uh, my, uh, my response to that is that 
if we only had those six people on that committee, they would never agree to that. I don't believe there's one language in the world where a family does not have sons and daughters, and they don't have a term for a son or a daughter. And any term you use for a son is good for Jesus. Yeah. Now, I imagine that Muslims are going to be offended by the Bible no matter what you do anyway, with it. That's right. It's correct. Now, I don't, want, I don't want to put offenses in the Bible in order to make them offended. But right. if, you, if you are telling the truth and you're saying the right thing and they're offended, it's not your fault because the, the, Jesus, was, Jesus was in a culture that's similar to Islam today where they rejected his sonship and they called him blasphemous. They even called him, you are a demon. Because, yeah. because he said, Son of God. So what's the difference between a Jew who heard Jesus say, Son of God, and a Muslim who is offended exactly as the Jew was at the time? Let's go back. There are still going to be some things in the New Testament or in the Bible in general that are going to offend Muslims, even when we take out all these terms or change them. What are some of those things that would still offend Muslims anyway? Well, Muslims are offended by the idea of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're offended uh-huh. by, by the idea of the incarnation. I think I mentioned this already. Like in John 1 says, the Word became flesh. Yeah, that would be offensive to them, even though they believe Jesus is the Word of God, but that He became flesh means that he was something else before. And they don't believe that. They believe he came created by God right. uh, in the womb of, Ma- of Mary. So there's about 10 different things that the Muslims object to Christianity, and that's the uh, Trinity, the incarnation, the death of Jesus, the nature of Christ, of course, the, the, uh, the death of Jesus, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And that overarching problem is that the whole Bible has been corrupted. Right. So if you, if you believe the whole Bible is corrupted, I don't care how you translate anything in it. I'm, I don't believe it's accurate to start with. So that's the main offense. Well, I guess another big offense is that it, there is no Muhammad in the Bible. Well, they, they claim that there, there is. Oh, they do. Where is he? Yeah. In uh, John 16, where it says, uh, I will not leave you orphans, but I'll send you the Holy Spirit as a comforter. Uh-huh. They believe that is uh, a reference to Muhammad. Oh. But, but the way they do it is through the, the back door. They go to the Greek. The Greek says uh, parakletos, mm-hmm. which means uh, the Holy Spirit or the one that comes alongside you. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they say, well, there was a mis- misspelling, and it should be perikletos, not parakletos. Perikletos means that the, uh, the praiseworthy person. Oh. And so who, who is the praiseworthy person? It's uh, Muhammad, because the word Muhammad means praiseworthy. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Now, there's lots of talk in the New Testament about the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. 
how do they deal with that? Is there is that always going to be offensive? Do Muslim idiom translations try to tone that down? The uh, Muslims believe, uh, Muslim apologists or, you know, theologians, they believe the Holy Spirit is Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. Oh, okay. All right, so I'm a Muslim and I'm reading, I'm just reading the New Testament. So one of the the main things that's going to offend me is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That's right, yeah. Okay. Well, because he, he didn't die. Right. Uh, the, the idea is that uh, the Quran actually says he did not die, he wasn't crucified, but they thought so. It appeared to them as though he did. And so they interpreted as that God chose someone else who looked like him and... and uh, confused the the vision of the those who arrested him okay and they made and made it look like that's Jesus so they crucified someone but God tricked them and he took Jesus to heaven directly I see so when I get to revelation I'm a Muslim reader and I see the the lamb of God being worshiped in heaven all that is that also offensive Oh, of course, very offensive. They they tell us that we are worshiping a man. I don't know how much they're aware of the revelation. Most Muslims don't know the Bible. But uh, the, the apologists to Islam, you know, glean through the Bible and they find offensive things here and there to promote it among their, their people that the Bible is not reliable. They believe that we have made Jesus into a God, that at one time, Jesus was just a human being, and then we, after he died, we made him into a god. So it's okay. just like his followers loved him so much that he, they made up the idea that he, he was God. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Any last things before we stop that you would like to comment on for how Christians should think critically and biblically about these MIT issues? I would like to emphasize the fact that the Bible can defend itself. We don't need to try to make God look better or Mm. simpler than he is or easier. There's a mystery in the scripture, Mm. and we need to keep the mystery there. I was taught in Bible translation theory that I should make explicit what's implicit. I say, no, Mm -hmm. if God meant it to be implicit, I would translate it implicitly. And if it's explicit, I would uh, translate it explicitly. And Jesus made it clear to us that he, he intentionally spoke in parables so that those who don't see will remain blind, you know, or those who are blind will not see and those who are deaf will not hear. But to you, I will speak plainly, he said to them. So, so he yeah. deliberately made it difficult for people to even understand simple things like the parable of the sower, what's so complicated about it. Yeah. Uh, but he made it uh, clear to his disciples that I do it in riddles so that those who are hardened in their heart will just remain that way because they made a choice against God. I believe we should not play sociological games or linguistic games. We need to be as faithful. It's, it's very complex. I'm not saying it's easy, 
But I have worked really mm-hmm. hard at this, and I, with the help of God and a, a wonderful team, because of my insistence on remaining faithful to the Word and to the core values of the Scriptures, core doctrines, uh, my translation has been very successful, and it has uh, generated or um, triggered many wonderful movements of God among the Arabs and the Kurds, who did not have a Bible before. They couldn't understand it, couldn't read it, it wasn't accessible. And now it is, and uh, there's huge response. I want to thank George again for taking the time to contribute to this series. It's generosity like his that makes this podcast more helpful and useful. Also, I want to mention that, again, while I tried my best to interview people who would disagree with George, no one was willing to participate. So my apologies if it sounds a bit one-sided so far in the series. So thank you so much for listening. Once again, if you found this podcast helpful, if you're finding this series helpful, it would be really great to hear your experience in a review over at Apple Podcasts. Those reviews are always encouraging to me personally, and I know that they help other people discover the podcast and enjoy and learn with us. 